All right, let's bow our heads for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we study more about the seal of God and the mark of the beast, I ask that you would be here as our guide. And I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. I'll tell you where we're headed with this study so you can know, if I don't make it, how far you have to go. We're aiming to be able to share with someone who does not know what we know about the spirit of prophecy, to share with them a convincing Bible study on the seal of God and the mark of the beast that is not dependent on sensational use of historical sources. Do you follow what I'm communicating? Let me start over. I want you to be able to give a study on the seal of God and the mark of the beast to a non-Adventist, biblically. What happens often in our evangelistic series is that we give a Bible study on the second coming, a Bible study on the Sabbath, a Bible study on the immortality of the soul being false, a Bible study on tithing, a Bible study on adornment, although that one often is a very thin Bible study. But when we get to the issue of the mark of the beast, we give a few verses and begin quoting the papacy. Quote one, quote two, quote three, quote four. If we need to, we quote more. We do that until they go out the place. Well, anyway... Uh, listen, we really lose a lot of people to the mark of the beast, not because it's a more problematic doctrine than what we say about death or the Sabbath, but because it just plumb looks false. All right, so maybe today I will start going over why it looks false, and then we'll pick up where we left off yesterday. The first reason it looks false is because it doesn't make any sense to people that Seventh-day Adventists are the only people going to heaven. And our, the, our doctrine about the mark of the beast. Because in the Bible, what happens to people that get the mark of the beast? Come on, what happens to them? Third angel's message, they're tormented in the presence of the Lamb with fire and brimstone, and they have no rest day nor night. It's bad news. So if we say that Sunday keeping is the mark of the beast, even if we communicate it, do people hear exactly what you have to say? Is it possible that you could say that Sunday keeping in the future will be the mark of the beast and people would hear that Sunday keeping is the mark of the beast? It's not only possible, it's entirely predictable. People don't hear you that carefully. So should you be very careful how you say what you say about the mark of the beast? Yeah, you should. Um, why else does it look false? It looks false because in the New Testament, the seal is always connected with the Holy Spirit, and never once is the sealing connected with the Sabbath. 
Never once. So it makes the doctrine that Sabbath keeping is the seal of God and Sunday keeping is the mark of the beast really look very manufactured. Something, or maybe everyone that's been converted is sealed. Um, although that, of course, we talked about evidence yesterday. Don't we have plenty of evidence that you're a servant before you're sealed? Yeah. So the, the idea is sort of, they might not have a concrete idea of what is the seal of God, but they would know that whatever it is, you don't have it. I mean, excuse me, that what you're teaching isn't it. So if we could... Rise a step above and just look at those objections from their eyes. However we present this needs to communicate that the sealing is done by the Holy Spirit, which certainly is the truth. Whatever we say needs to communicate that people can be servants of God without keeping the Sabbath and can be servants of God without being completely sealed. Can we prove those points biblically? Why simple, with the way we give all our other Bible studies. And we will want to connect the mark of the beast not with observing Sunday, but with obeying, obeying a worship law to keep or to honor Sunday. And how would I make that distinction clear? Yesterday I gave you hints from Daniel 3 and 6. I talked about what was the mark of the beast in, or what was the seal of God in Daniel 3? It was standing up. And what was the equivalent of the seal of God in Daniel 6? It was bowing down. What was the equivalent of the mark of the beast in Daniel 3? The mark of the beast in Daniel 3? It's bowing down. And the equivalent of the mark of the beast in Daniel 6 would be praying to Darius. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the most simplistic way I know to communicate it. I know the thoughts I have, but I don't know if I made a list in my head, so I don't know if I can give you back the list you wrote down. Yeah, the first one is that the Holy Spirit is the one that's giving the seal. Tell me what you have written down, and I'll know that's all you have. Yeah. Okay, so that's right. So you can be a servant of God. You can be one of God's own people without being sealed. And the third point I'm trying to make, I mean, I don't know what order you have, so I'll just go forward. I was saying that the mark of the beast is not keeping Sunday. The mark of the beast is submitting to the beast's civil authority in a Sunday law. The mark of the beast is not the keeping of Sunday. 
It's the submission to the National Sunday Law. It's not Sunday observance. It's capitulation to papal authority. It's not what day you go to church. It's who you bow down to. Yeah. Um, where will we spend most of our time in this business? We're going to be methodical if we go to our three angels' messages. Are those messages we've been given to give to the world? They are. And if we go to three angels' messages, the first one is that one that establishes the judgment. And do we establish, when we establish the judgment, anything about the Ten Commandments? It's very clear. It's clear, in, for example, in the end of Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Why? For God will bring every work into, into judgment. Exactly that. The judgment is connected with commandment keeping. Then it's also done in James chapter 2, where you have the royal law. And if we break it in one point, we're guilty of all. And then it says at the end of that little passage, that's verses 8 through 12, that um, we ought to so live as they that will be judged by the, remember what it says? Law of liberty. What's connected to this idea of the judgment? The idea of keeping the law. We're judged by the law. And then, of course, we reviewed yesterday Romans 2. Um, those that have the law are the only ones that have a chance at salvation in Romans 2. And how are they judged? You know what it says in Romans 2? Okay, you're not wrong, Katie. What, what we were showing in Romans 2 is that, and this is Paul's point too, Romans 2 says that those that don't have the law are lost. Those that have the law are judged by the law. And then he adds the parenthesis, however, there are people who have never heard the law that have it. And who are those people that have never heard the law and have it? The ones who have submitted to the work of the Spirit in the heart, and so the law has been written in their mind. So they qualify, according to Paul's parentheses, as people who have the law. Now, if the law has been written in their heart, does that mean they're certainly going to heaven? That's tricky. No, they still can be condemned or they can be excused because they have to be faithful to the end. Romans 2 doesn't teach any once... Saved, always saved, once law written, always law written. But it teaches that uh, they will be judged by the law of their mind. So now we come to the first angel's message where it says, for the hour of his judgment is come. And then it says, worship him. Two ideas are connected judgment and worship. And they're connected throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. 
Um, what is the issue in the Trino's messages? It's who you worship. Whether you worship him or you worship the beast. And when you worship him, what about him in particular are you worshiping? Worship him that made the heavens and the earth and the sea. That's exactly it. You're worshiping him as creator. Now turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. And we're looking at verse 3. It says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts. They're scoffing at something, making fun of something, and how are they living? That's right, according to their appetites and passions and desires. And they're saying... Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Do they believe in creation? Apparently, in some way, they do believe in creation, but they're denying a soon coming judgment. They're called scoffers. And what are they scoffing at? A soon coming judgment. Verse 5. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were, what does it say? Of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. So in verse 4, they believe in some sort of creation, but in verse 5, what kind do they not believe in? A six-day creation. Ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing. Verse 6 is the flood that Matt was mentioning. Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. This is a very interesting class of men, and we ought to pay attention, because when is this class going to rise? Prophecy says in the last days there are going to be people who believe in the idea of creation but they're willingly ignorant of the six-day creation and willingly ignorant of the flood. And they deny a God of judgment. What are they scoffing at? Very apparently, the first angel's message. The message that said, for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Do they live at the right time to scoff the first angel's message? Yeah, in the end of time is the right time to scoff the first angel's message. Listen, you might have the idea in your mind that the first angel's message is past. Well, it's not past. I mean, it has been given, but this is still time to give it. This has to be the same class that received the mark of the beast because they're lost at the end of time. 
Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. I don't know if you all caught how incredible that prophecy was that we just read. That the Bible could predict 2,000 years ahead of time the doctrine of theistic evolution. And it's widespread acceptance in the end of time. That the Bible could predict the doctrine of theistic evolution and its widespread acceptance in the end of time. Listen, that doctrine did not come around until just a hundred and some years ago. And it was accepted as a real doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, where a pope said that evolution is more than a theory, that was while you were still in secondary school. For some of you, you were already in college. It was in the last couple of years of John Paul II's life. Um, listen, this is recent stuff. Doctrines of devils. And does it contrast sharply with the first angel's message? It does. So we look at the first angel's message, and we see here the people who accept this message are going to be the ones who acknowledge or worship God as the creator. And then we see in verse 12 that they're the ones who keep the commandments of God. Then we see in verse 11, they're the ones who do not receive the mark. And if I put those three ideas together, they honor God as creator. They keep the law. And they have not the mark. I'm very close to where I'm going. Those that don't have the mark in Revelation 14 are the ones that have the seal. That's in the first part of chapter 14. 144,000 are listed there, those that have the seal of God. Who are those that have the seal? Well, we learn from other passages, seal the law among my disciples. That the sealing work is done by the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing? Writing the law in the mind. Part of the law honors God as creator. And what part of the law honors God as creator? It's the Sabbath. And is the Sabbath a sign? The Sabbath is a sign. What kind of a sign? It's a sign of sanctification. Then a logical question is, so we're going to have a a Christian law 
about worship. Why do I say Christian? Well, that's what I gather from Matthew 7 and Matthew 25 for that matter. The people who are lost when Christ comes back, do you notice how in both of those places they sound surprised? In other words, did they have too much or too little assurance of salvation? They had way too much. Matthew 7.25 described classes of people who had plenty of assurance of salvation. It was ill-founded. And we learn from those passages that these people who received the mark of the beast must be professedly Christian people. And yet here's a law that is requiring people to violate the law of God. And if we just ask, which commandment of the law of God would Christians make a law to force you to violate? Would there be a Christian law to force you to commit adultery? To force you to covet? Could you make a law like that? To force you to take God's name in vain? To force you to steal? To force you to lie? To force you to bow down to idols? Have Christians tried to make Sunday laws? History is full of it. And so are the law books. From where to where? From people being surprised in law books codified in Oh, because it says in Matthew 7 and Matthew 25 that these people say, Lord, Lord, have we not in your name? What do you call people who do things in the name of Jesus? Christians. Christians. So here are the people who are lost in the end of time. And who are the people who are lost in the book of Revelation? Yeah, they're the people who have the mark of the beast. I just put those together, unless there are two unrelated classes of lost people in the end of time, which is not possible because Revelation 13 says all the world. So here I have all the world in Revelation 13 that has the mark of the beast, and I have all the world illustrated in Matthew 7 and 25 as calling Jesus Lord. And it really doesn't surprise me to see all that. Because I find the whole world following the beast in Revelation 13. Is the beast a Christian organization? It is. So, yeah, so it's no, we don't have to go anywhere at all. We can, we can prove from the Bible a few things. We can prove that the Sabbath is, Sabbath keeping is the sign of the seal. We can prove that the Catholic Church is the beast. We can prove that there will be a law forcing people to violate God's law. We'll have a clash of laws. Exactly. And we can prove that we'll have a clash of creation theories. And it just really doesn't take any further than that to establish that there's going to be a Sunday law in the future enforcing the keeping of the Pope's 
self-honoring day. But what will be? How will you receive that mark when the law forbids you? It's nice to illustrate this from Daniel three. Is there anything wrong with kneeling down? No, but there's something wrong with kneeling down when you're forced to do it in honor of an image. And there really is nothing wrong with going to church on Sunday. Is there anything wrong with going to church on Sunday? Paul does it in Acts 20. But there's something wrong with bowing down to an image. And when the pressure is put on the world to bow down to that image through a Sunday worship law, to submit to that in appearance or in reality will be to incur the threats of the second and third angel's messages. This is a long handout I gave you, 18 pages. I'm going to look and see what kind of verses that are in here that we haven't used yet. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. I'm looking at the seal of God and the mark of the beast, number 5. This is a significant distinction between the papacy and Jesus. There's hardly a distinct correlation, but there's plenty of distinct distinctions. Let me just tell you the story, and I think you'll be able to see it. Jesus is talking to Lucifer. Lucifer starts this conversation. And Lucifer says, if you will only bow down to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth, because they have been given to me. Now, who gave them to him? If anyone did, it was Adam. But they really weren't Adam's. Adam was just the steward of them. So Satan claims them, but also God claims them. But anyway, that aside, would Lucifer have demanded that Jesus be very sincere in bowing down, or would he have accepted a a hypocritical bow? It's very obvious that the devil never has been very intent on sincerity. He will accept a sham worship. Would he have accepted the kneeling down of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It wouldn't have to be sincere. Does the devil bribe people to worship him? He tried to bribe Jesus, didn't he? Would that have been sincere worship if Jesus accepted the bribe and took it? 
That's not heart religion to accept a bribe and worship. The point I'm trying to make settled plain is that the devil does not require sincerity. He's desperate and he'll take whatever kind of honor he can get. But more than that, the devil does not even require direct honor. I think I might have put the passages in this chapter that, um, yeah, if you'll look on the right column, you'll see there Deuteronomy 32.17 and Psalm 106.36-37. Those passages indicate that the worship that was directed to idols, how did demons relate to it? They accepted it as if it was directed to themselves. The devil accepts very ignorant worship. You can conceive of him as a rock figure with a hollow place inside of you for coins, and he will accept worship that way. This, ex- Yes, sir. I didn't put page numbers on these things, but it's, it's study five. Every two or three pages you'll see a study number. That's the right column. Does Jesus accept insincere worship? This is the difference between the mark of the beast and the seal of God. The mark of the beast can be received either in the head or in the hand. The devil will accept sincerity, but he'll also accept insincere conformity. Will God accept insincere conformity? The truth is that the seal of God has to be in both the forehead and the hand. But to avoid confusion, the Bible only points out that God is looking for it in the forehead. Because if it's in the forehead, it's going to be in the hand. Which part? Um, The closest you'll find is Deuteronomy 6, but the one I'm looking for is your reasoning power to realize that the law is written in your heart, you're going to be living it. In your handout there, you'll see two passages, one from John 4 and one from Acts 17. These are the two passages that discuss how God relates to ignorant worship. It says in John 4, Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the... Excuse me, this is Matthew 4.10. Worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. The point I wanted to draw from Matthew 4 is that God does not accept divided worship. He demands no competition. Then John 4, But the hour comes and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. What is the Father looking for? Only sincere worshipers. Only true worshipers. God is a spirit and they that worship him have the option of worshiping him in spirit and in truth. What does it say? They must. God requires and will only accept true, sincere, heart worship. Acts 17, verse 23, next column. 
For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Does Paul give them credit for worshiping God? He gives them credit for worshiping God, but he says they're worshiping him ignorantly. Let's see how God relates to ignorant worship. Going on. God that made the world and all things therein. The first thing that Paul wants people worshiping God ignorantly to know is what characteristics does he point out first? That he's the creator. If I could say that backwards, one of the fundamental characteristics of ignorant worship of God is the one that ignores that he is the, or is ignorant of the fact that he is the creator. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Skipping down. Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. Down further. For in him we live and move and have our being. We ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art or man's device. Listen, and the times of this ignorance God, what does it say? Winked at. How does God relate to ignorant worship? He gracefully ignores it. He mercifully pays no attention to it. He kindly overlooks it. He doesn't accept it. Because those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Does he accept ignorant worship? Excuse me. Does he wink or overlook ignorant worship perpetually? He commands people that are ignorantly worshiping him to repent of their ignorant worship. Matthew 15 is interesting on this point. Look at Matthew 15, 8 in your Bibles. It's, I don't have it written out here in your handout. It's alluded to, but it's important. Matthew chapter 15, in verse 8. But this people draws nigh unto me with their mouth and honors me with their lips so what kind of praise do people tend to or what kind of honor do people tend to give God I answered my own question it's verbal praise we love to sing his praises I have it further down on the left column good we love to sing his praises. We love to say with our lips that he is our God. We, we make up so many songs like this. Is God looking for words? That's a tricky question. He's only looking for words that come from a heart that has had the law written in it. When Jesus 
denies the value of these words, on what basis does he deny it? But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Oh, in the end of verse 8 he says, but their heart is far from me. These two verses together, I should have put them together in the handout, because they put three ideas together that are central to Revelation. The idea of worship and vain worship, the idea of heart worship, and the idea of commandments of God and men. If I could say that simply, the issue of commandments, of heart, and of worship. The two verses together teach that worship of God is vain if the commandments of man are being written in the heart rather than the law of God. I expected one of you to say, would you say that again? Okay, yes. The worship of God is vain when conducted by those who have the commandments of man in the heart rather than the law of God. I said it better the first time. Mm -hmm. Worshiping God is vain Mm -hmm. if the commandments of men are being written in the heart rather than the law of God. then if we come to the book of Revelation, we find that the whole issue is worship. What kind of worship do we expect is the faulty worship there? It would be the worship that is related to the teachings of the commandments of men when the law of God is not written in the heart. Does that match everything else that we've looked at? It's right on target, and it's what we'd expect. I should tell you, this isn't in your handout, that I don't want to buy this part of the, of the study to be little verbal praise. In fact, the Bible says that whosoever offereth praise glorifieth, I think it says me, but if it doesn't, it says God. I don't know. Nevertheless, I know it's in there. Is God looking for verbal praise? He is, but he's looking for verbal praise that comes from a heart that is with him. That is a heart in who, a man in whose heart is his law. We talked about yesterday that fundamental principle that man looks on the outward appearance to see if there's conformity, we can see here, to the commandments of men. God looks on the heart to see if there's conformity to the law of God. I love saying these things because every thought that you say like this is just like three or four verses put together. It's just the truth of God as simple and plain as it can be in Scripture. So we talked earlier in this class about the attributes for which Christ is worshipped in Revelation chapter 5. What are those attributes? He's worshipped as creator and worshipped as 
Redeemer. And those are the, the bases of his worship all through Scripture. In your handout, if you look at the next page, you'll see there that interesting reference to Roman, or Revelation 14, verse 11. We're talking about the punishment of those who receive the mark of the beast. The Bible says, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Let me help you see the light in this verse. Those that kill apostles and prophets are given blood to drink. Do you remember that? This is that in the plagues. They shed men's blood and they're given blood to drink. Those who worship frogs in Egypt are overrun with Frogs. Those who worship the sun in the seven last plagues are scorched with the sun. Those that um, I'm thinking of going back to the Egyptian plagues, they worshipped so many of those things, but I forget which ones. Well, they worshipped the Nile, didn't they? And so the Nile was turned to Blood. And the Pharaoh's son would be the next Pharaoh, and they lost him. It's very clear in the seven last plagues, the angels say it this way, you are just, for you have judged thus. Let's look at it. We have time. Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16 and verse 5 and 6. And I heard the angel of the waters say, You are righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because you have judged this way. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Now we find a judgment in Revelation 14, and the judgment is that they have no rest day nor night. What have they been doing wrong? Does it match what we've learned everywhere else? It's very apparent that the judgment matches a crime of ignoring God's holy day. It's very apparent that the judgment of having no rest day, having no rest day nor night, matches the crime of not keeping God's rest day. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 1, verse 13. This is in your handout in the next study, just about the next page, the one that says the sign of the Spirit's work. By the way, it's a 
It was not intended that you would have four-point type on this handout. Um, I don't know. Ephesians 1.13, it says, You also trusted in Jesus after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, what does it say? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now this is very interesting to us. Because were they sealed as soon as they believed? He doesn't clarify how much time was involved, but he indicates a succession of events. Ephesians 1.13, that there is a belief, and then after that there is a sealing. Now, was there an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Christians generally in the first century? You know, there was an outpouring of the Spirit. And if the Spirit was poured out on you, you could know that you were a real Christian. Where do I get that idea? From the arguments of Peter in Acts 8. How does he prove that Cornelius and his family were really Christian? It's because they had received the Spirit. The Spirit was the evidence that you were really legitimately gods. Is there to be a pouring out of God's Spirit in the end of time? You know, that's connected with the seal of God. That is, that we're going to be sealed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into our life. But when is that going to happen? When the work of sanctification is completed. Is the seal. Absolutely. In fact, I was talking to a man in Arkadelphia. Maybe someday he'll listen to this because I've heard he's come a long way since that conversation. And uh, he was drunk when I was talking to him. Very biblically literate compared to the average person. And we were talking about alcohol consumption and drunkenness in Scripture. And he indicated that he was sure that there was nothing wrong with his drinking because he had been sealed by an outpouring of the Holy Spirit while he was intoxicated. We talked about that. Not while I was talking to him. Weren't of you there and I was talking to him about that? No, it was last semester. It was. Anyway, since he, I'm not going to tell you his name because he wouldn't want me to, right? Um, he has since stopped drinking. And um, we'll give him credit for that. What's my point? My point is I want you to understand that the seal of God, when we say that it's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is writing the law in our hearts. That's the sealing process. But there is a seal that is put in the forehead. That is, there is a, you can say the seal is there or isn't there. There is going to be a pouring out of the Holy Spirit analogous to what was described here in Ephesians 1.13. And it's going to be on those who's, who have been completely 
sealed. So to quote the testimonies, although this is a Bible study, but it might be interesting to you, not one of us will receive the seal of God while our characters have one spot or stain. Look down at Colossians, Second Corinthians, excuse me, one twenty-one. Actually, never mind. Uh, your assignment is to finish reading this by tonight, and you are dismissed. The class is over. I'm sorry, by Thursday.